The earth is the embodiment of the feminine energy and gardens are a reflection on how we've treated women for a long time. And we've suppressed the feminine energy to a point where it's only going to be acceptable if it's pretty or productive. I just think we've had enough of that as women, right? You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother-daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Welcome to The Good Dirt, everyone. Whether you are a new listener or you've been here a while, we are so glad you're here. And it would really help us out if you thought of a friend that you think would love The Good Dirt podcast, whether it's this episode that you're about to hear or another episode that you've listened to recently. And All you have to do is send it to them, share it with them, say, hey, I think you love this podcast because think about it. What's better than being recommended a great podcast that you end up loving? So you can be that for your friend and it's amazing and we can all feel good about it and it really helps us out too. spread the word. And I imagine that if you like this podcast, then people that you're friends with would probably like this podcast as well. So We appreciate it so much, and we're so glad you're here. Thank you. Yes, we do. Thank you so much for sharing and listening and learning with us. We love this so much, sharing with you and talking to all these great people, and it's really fun. So we will start out today. Emma, I have a question for you. When was the last time that you looked for a four-leaf clover. Oh, it's been a while. I haven't looked for a four-leaf clover in a really long time. Well, I have found myself doing that lately because we are mowing a lot less in our yard this year. And we have right now these beautiful, giant, lush clumps of clover. And they just beg you to go sink down and look through them and see if you can find one. They just sort of call to me when I'm out there drinking my coffee or just looking around the garden. But It reminds me of when I was a kid, and that brings me to the subject of lawns. I know this is a topic that comes up frequently on here, but it's really relevant to today's episode. Yeah, and as we're currently talking, I hope it's not too much of a distraction, but there are leaf blowers going on outside my window. You shouldn't be able to hear them, but I can hear them. (laughs) (laughs) and It's pretty much a constant. Where there are lawns, there are leaf blowers. Yeah, it is springtime. And it is the beginning of lawn mowing season. So it's a good time to keep some things in mind, such as the fact that there are somewhere around 40 million acres of lawn in the lower 48 states. And 
long grass is the single largest irrigated crop in the U.S. And the landscape irrigation is estimated to account for nearly a third of all residential water use, totaling nearly 9 billion gallons a day. And that's for your grass. That's really crazy because I wouldn't have thought of a lawn as a crop until now. But I guess that makes sense because it's like all over America is just like a big lawn farm. When you think about it, it's like, why? What are lawns for? What are we farming? It's just an input plot when you think about it. Yeah. And besides water, lawn care relies on huge amounts of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. I mean, just think of going into your garden center this time of year. There's just walls and walls of giant bags of stuff that people are taking home and putting on their lawn and it's washing into waterways. It pollutes the air. It's harmful to pets and wildlife and your ecosystem and not good for our health either. So Just think about if some portion of all the lawn across the country could be turned over to growing food. What if it were cool to have a big vegetable garden instead of a pristine lawn in front of your house? Wouldn't that be the coolest thing? That would be really cool. I don't know. That just seems so far from the from cultural norm. My worry is that we're the only people that think that's the coolest thing. (laughs) It just seems like such a major cultural thing. I don't know if I could see it happening. That's part of the problem, right? Is people think that that the only way to get beautiful green open spaces is by doing the lawn thing. It's true because it's so entrenched in our national psyche, this mm-hmm. idea of a lawn. It's really a fascinating topic. And today we're going to be talking about that, among other things, with our guest, Mary Reynolds. She is the author of We Are the Ark, which we discovered earlier this year. And then we decided we wanted to interview her on this podcast immediately. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure that this book is going to go down for me as one of the most influential books I've read in many years. Yes. And thanks to Natalie or at Isa Maisa on Instagram for sending Mary Reynolds our way. She has had so many great suggestions for us just in in DMs on Instagram. So thank you. And we encourage anyone who has ideas or thoughts or book recommendations or podcast guest recommendations, definitely send them to us. We really look at those. And as in this instance, we hopped right on it. And what a wonderful discovery. So thank you so much, Natalie. So Mary Reynolds is a reformed, internationally acclaimed landscape designer who launched her career at the Chelsea Flower Show in 2002, the story of which was made into a 2016 movie called Dare to be Wild. She is a best-selling author, an inspirational speaker, occasional television presenter, and founder of the global movement We Are the Ark, a practical groundswell movement that finally shifts the environmental game in nature's favor. Mary makes the claim, that the time for gardens as canvases for our creative pleasure is over. Everything must change. And if we are to save the planet, then we must start with our own patches of it. It's time to reimagine our work as gardeners, to become leaders in the race to save our beautiful planet and to save ourselves. I love this radical call to action. It has deeply inspired me to take a different approach to my own personal interaction with the land around me. And that is exactly what I'm practicing beginning this season. 
Mary quotes, I have come full circle with garden and landscape design. Now I want you to give any land under your care back to nature, to rewild, to be arced with acts of restorative kindness to the earth. So as you can tell, we're really excited to bring you this interview today. Get ready to have some of your thinking challenged in the very best of ways. Here's Mary Reynolds, author of We Are the Ark, coming to us all the way from Ireland. My name is Mary Reynolds and I used to be a landscape designer. I live in the dream, working all over the world. And I slowly have been writing my way out of a job. (laughs) And finally, I came to the end point a few years ago when I was sitting at my desk looking at my window and it was winter morning. And a fox ran past outside my window and... Pretty soon after, a couple of hares were chasing the fox, which is unusual in itself. So I kept watching and eventually I saw a little hedgehog scuttling along the hedge. And it reminded me of stories of Noah's Ark when I was a kid. So I went outside and followed the direction they were coming from, went up the lane and came. I live in the southeast of Ireland in the countryside. And on the other side of the lane, there used to be a thicket of a field which was impenetrable, full of gorse and bracken, all these thorny native plants. There was a whole community of plants living in there and it was impenetrable to humans. But somebody had got planning permission to build a house at the top of the field and they did what everybody does. They send in a digger to clear the whole lot to make a garden without any thought for the creatures that call it home. And I stood there in horror, really, because I know I had done the same thing myself so many times. And so wandered back inside and I started researching and realized that through my research that we've lost 75% of all our wildlife on the planet since 1970. And that gardens, even though they purport to be natural and connecting people to nature. They're quite selfish undertakings, really, often from a good place. Just the people have lost their knowledge, including myself. I started an organization or a movement because it's just me. There's no organization. (laughs) I started a movement called We Are the Ark, and I called it Acts of Restorative Kindness because I didn't want people to think it was affiliated with any religion or anything like that, which it's not. Mm -hmm. And, And it's taken off and it's very simple concept and it's gone all around the world. Oh, so exciting. That was a wonderful aha moment you described there. That was your shifting point from, you said you were a landscape designer. Now you call yourself a reformed landscape designer. And you said a little bit about that, but can you talk more about the realization that you had about what you've been doing in your career Sure. I can talk for hours about this, Mary. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I can listen. So I guess what I do now is I design what I call arcs. And Mm -hmm. it's similar to rewilding in a sense. Wilding on a large scale is a really wonderful undertaking, but you'd need at least 1500 acres to do that, to get the full ecosystem back into place. So with arcing, it can happen in a window box if you don't have any land or up to whatever scale of land you do have under your care. And so what I'm asking people to do is, is if you want to save the planet, start with your own patch of it. Very simple thing. And if you, we just have to learn how to share because the web of life, which is what makes up this living planet, 
is an intricate and incredibly intelligent network of interconnected relationships between everything below the soil, below the water, in the air, above the ground, everywhere. These relationships have evolved over millennia to create these local food webs which support everybody and everything. And the only creature on the whole planet which has no role to play in that food web is us. And so we need to realize that our only role here is to look after everything else. And that's a really important role. And we have pushed nature to a point where she's absolutely exhausted. So the idea now is for us to step up and step into our role as guardians instead of gardeners. And it's a difficult one for people to do, to let go of their gardens because they love their gardens. People love their gardens. So what I'm asking them to do is maybe just to consider giving half of their land back to nature and to do some work to restore the native plant ecosystems and to add in as much support as possible within that for habitat to support any life that needs refuge. And also another big part of arcing is growing food without chemicals, regeneratively, organically, in a way that supports life and steps all of us outside of the industrial farming system, which is alongside industrial fishing and forestry is killing everything on the planet. And so I think it's really important that people grow food if they can. And if they're not physically able to grow food, then that's fine. But to support local growers, local farmers, and the word local is incredibly important because the crazy, absolutely batshit crazy food system, which has happened and developed in our modern world, which food in one part of the planet moves it around the planet to wrap it and then moves it back around the planet to distribute it in shops which have no connection to the place that they came from. And the food itself is depleted of nutrients generally. It's almost dead. It's been pumped full of artificial fertilizers to the point where all the other nutrients are missing. And so people are starving even though they're eating. So you've got two types of starvation these days. You've got malnutrition through obesity and malnutrition from lack of food. So there's a whole imbalance. And this idea that the food industry is pushing upon us that we need to feed the world through all these massive industrial processes is pure greenwash. And like all greenwash, it's there to support the industry and not to support people. And so the only way to feed the world is to support the world to feed themselves. And this is so simple and so obvious. And it's just that people very quickly lose their knowledge. And so we have to try and support all that cultural and practical knowledge to come back into play. I love that. We don't need to figure out how to feed the world. We need to figure out how to support the world to feed themselves. Okay, what about New York City? Are all of those people that live in New York City, they can't possibly all grow enough food to support them for a whole year. So what does that look like? What does supporting New York City to feed itself look like? 
There's a wonderful lady called Amber Tam. She's an amazing lady. She's trying to convince people to turn Central Park into a kind of growing place, which makes oh an gosh. awful lot of sense. <laughs> and an allotment situation would be very useful. Oh, yes, yeah, she's great. <laughs> There are a lot of gardens. You can do an awful lot on balconies. But practically speaking, what you need to do is look at outside New York City, the amount of land that's currently being destroyed through forestry or farming. And just to to just policies need to be put in place to support those landowners to put that land back into the hands of people who can actually grow food in a way that doesn't destroy the place and it's not that hard it's just we are coming to a point where we're going to have to make big changes and big shifts and like we are going to look back in 10 years time and think why the hell did we not throw out the rule book and so the rule book needs to be remade and it needs brave politicians if there are any left in the planet to step up and do something about this Mm -hmm. so is like you i don't know new york city but i like Please respond and tell me, is there land around? Oh, after you said that, it's like, duh, like Hudson Valley, which is right above New York City. There's this great flight in the pandemic. A lot of people actually are moving there. But it's already for the for decades has been a mecca of amazing sustainable farming. Like it's that's already happening. It's just to your point, it's simple and it's there and there is the knowledge. But just the way that we are trained to get our food and what we know about that is what needs to be rewired. And the solution isn't that confounding if we just think about it for a minute. So yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. I have resonated, I think, so strongly with your message that it's easy for us to talk about these things that need to be changed and to say, our politicians need to do this and that and policies need to be changed and the rules need to be changed. And that is all so true. But this, what you're talking about is something everybody can do. I think it empowers the individual so much. And there's just more and more data, even since we've started this podcast, more and more talk about how removing lawns, enriching the soil, rehabilitating the soil right where you are, whether it be a square foot or a square yard or whatever, if if you can educate yourself, which doesn't take too much knowledge really, about bringing wildlife back, bringing carbon back into the soil and all those things. It's it, of course, it is science, but it's not rocket science. We don't all have to be soil scientists or soil specialists. This is something we all can do, everybody. And I want you to talk about how, how it can happen in everything from a window box or a, a pot on the porch to your backyard garden. I want to get to that, but maybe before that, I want you to talk about why there's generations of us that have just loved our gardens and taking pride in growing our flowers. And all this time, we have thought that we were being close to the earth and encouraging Mother Nature and all of this. And your language is very strong. And we are the ark. And with good reason, it gets our attention. When you actually talk about gardens as being, in one sense, they are lacking of life. So I would love to hear you expound on that a little bit. There's a wonderful author in America called Doug Talamy, and he's yes. written 
a couple of books called Nature's Best Hope and Bringing Nature Home. And everybody over there should buy these books if they're interested because he has the scientific kind of wonderful, he has the knowledge and the experience of the scientific side of things, which I don't. A lot of my stuff is very emotive. I just have a very strong feeling of what we're doing wrong and how we need to change it. But just to give you some idea of the scientific side of things, native plant ecosystems are have evolved over millennia and they're communities that support each other. And they also support all life moving up and down from the skin of the earth. For example, over here, we are told, and I'm sure it's the same everywhere, to plant, if you want to support wildlife, to plant certain plants to support the pollinators. And very, as far as I know, almost always those plants are not native. And so the interesting thing is that All these pollinators, the ones that lay eggs and have larvae as they're young, yes, they will be attracted to the big showy flowers. But as a result, they don't pollinate often insignificant plants, which they've developed intricate relationships with over millennia again. And plants are really good at defending themselves. So they're full of chemicals to stop things eating them. So insects have often specialized in focusing on one particular plant or a couple of different plants. And their larvae have learned to adapt to those poisons in the plants. So they so the obvious example is the monarch butterfly. Its larvae can only eat milkweed, which is extremely poisonous to everything else. So if there's no milkweed there, the monarch butterfly has nowhere to lay its eggs. Yes, it might get a good feed of, of nectar or it might be collected from whatever the pollinator flower that was planted there. You might see, I don't know what your plants are so much, mm-hmm. but you might see what would be an example of a pollinator plant over there. Give me one. A, a one native or a non-native? Non-native. One that people tell you to plant. like Hydrangeas. Hydrangeas. Yeah. I, I okay. don't think those are native and people love those because of the big showy color things. And So say you have lots of hydrangeas in your garden and you think you're doing something good for wildlife. The reality is that those larvae probably won't have anywhere to live because the insects will go and get a good feed, but they've nowhere to reproduce a new generation of their own species because their, pollinate, their plant partners are not there. And a lot of the time, those plant partners are things like weeds, which we keep pulling up because we think that they're not important. And the problem is that when the larvae have disappeared, because it's all about the larvae, when the larvae are not present, you don't have food for birds to feed their young because they feed them 80% larvae, maybe 20% spiders. And if you don't have the food for the birds, the birds are often food for more apex predator birds and upwards. And also those larvae would be food for things like a lot of foxes. I don't know if you guys have foxes, but they eat a lot of larvae and smaller mammals eat a lot of larvae. And it's a main food source, right? So those intricate relationships we have broken because we think it's important that we plant things that we think are pretty. And it's the intention behind what we're doing is wrong. And if you become an archivist rather than a gardener, what happens is everything that you do is about supporting life. And the really cool thing that happens is that when you when you turn your land into an ark, it's amazing how quickly life comes back. Like almost overnight, things just it's almost like the Batman light goes up in the sky and they know that there's sanctuary here, even though it looks like there's nothing there yet. It's all, they come back and suddenly, like you were saying earlier, Mary, 
it empowers people because with a little bit of work, you start to see how quickly nature recovers and how you're, you, you've become empowered and your heart opens to include every spider, every bird, every mammal, every wild plant, every strange little creature that comes back. They become part of your family and you become part of their family. And it just becomes a powerful situation and you become very protective of them. And then when you leave your land or your garden or your window box or whatever it is, you see all this land that we have taken. And a lot of it is just kept. It's filled with crappy plants that somewhere along the line, someone paid a fortune to plant or it's just grass that we maintain. And all of it suddenly becomes a lost opportunity and people become warriors in, in the most positive sense because they see how easily we can give back and how much we can do. And if we can just empower people that one little bit, we're on a winner because the whole environmental industry, which has become an industry, it just disempowers people because the more you know, the more you get upset and the more mm. you think, ah, oh, lads, so what can I do? I'll just curl up in a ball and wait for the world to end that's what happens people mm -hmm. lose faith they lose heart they look around at the abuse that's happening everywhere and they think feck it there's nothing I can do mm -hmm. now so what happens when you build an ark is you actually you don't want to leave home anymore it's, and then if you have some land and you have too much land as such you'll start you won't you might have too much land to grow food because I say grow food in half of it and let the rest be part be habitat and native mm -hmm. plant ecosystems but you might have too much land for food. If you share that land and share it with friends and neighbours and family who don't have land to grow food and they can have an allotment in, and then you create communities around growing food. And so you start to knit everything back together in, in the sense of human communities as well as the plant communities. And what's very interesting is that land, it was always understood by all our ancestors, no matter what part of the world you're in, but that we as humans, are, our health is a mirror of the health of the earth beneath your feet. So as you start to knit the plant communities back together, it's a mirror that you start to knit your own communities back together and you start to rewild yourself. You start to get well. You start to come back into your own true nature as you return your patch of the planet to its true nature. Early in the conversation, we mentioned policy and how that needs to change. And then, Mom, you said that sometimes that is hard to think about because that also feels so separate from us and a policy slow. is so slow to change. And so then it's like we realize what we can do as individuals. And I just want to connect those two ideas. A, we can do so much on our own obviously, as we know now with by building an arc. And B, in order to make any change on a broader scale, the people have to care and they have to know how to go about doing that. So it's both and, I think. And there are people who will be able to go out and do that and to make the systemic, help to make the systemic shifts. But in order to do that, they need to understand these concepts on a deep level too. So... Just that's just a point. I yeah, and that really ties into what you bring up, Mary, and you express so well is that in, maybe in the past we have thought that, and we know about we we know we want to attract pollinators and so forth, but 
it's more than just beautiful colors and any old showy flower. In fact, those can do harm, as you point out so well. And it's important for the native plants because of these evolved beings that make it all happen, the insects, the bugs, the birds, and the whole system has evolved over such an amount of time that when we throw in these things that don't belong here, it throws it all off. And I think, and that's super, super simplified, (laughs) but I put it out there like that so people can go, oh, oh, I get it now. I get it now. I need to pay attention to which showy flowers I'm putting there because there's very particular animal life that has very special role in this environment where I am right now and where you are, where everybody is, that needs certain plants. And so that's part of what you're talking about, Emma, like the knowledge of why and is kernel that the kernel of understanding, I think that's going to really help this thing go is that this might be new to a lot of us that we've all heard about, oh, you should plant natives, right? That's something that's been around, but to go a little further than that and understand why and the actual mechanics of it. And I've been reading Doug Ptolemy as well. And there's so many great writers and writers and speakers out there now talking about this. I think particularly in the When we start talking about lawns, and you bring this up in your book, there's 40 million acres of lawn in the United States alone. And so would you like to talk about lawns? (laughs) Okay, lawns are usually made of non-native plants and they're a monoculture. It's something that evolved. It's basically... It's a really old class concept. Years ago, when only very wealthy people had lots and lots of land, they would have kept lawns around their large estate houses. And they had people to to do the work for them or they used sheep a lot of the time and ha-has. And then they kept just the place around the house cut with their gardeners and sides and all that sort of thing. But after the Industrial Revolution, people started to have more money in general. The class system started to shift slightly and people wanted to prove that they didn't need to use every patch of land they had to grow food. So they tried to look like the land of gentry. And it was like, if I have a lawn, it makes it, it makes me look really wealthy. So oh, it wow, came I didn't know that, that. That's amazing. Crazy idea. And so I can't understand the concept. It's getting worse. So now that people have lawns, they're getting more and more disconnected from the earth. And these days it's gone Worse, where people just roll out these disgusting carpets of plastic grass everywhere and it causes massive damage to the microorganisms in the soil and the microplastics disappear down there and get eaten and redistributed out through the system. It's not healthy. So so the very basic, simple way of tackling a lawn would be to kill it off and the way and there's no chemicals if, if just if you can avoid using chemicals please do because they cause more problems than they solve a lot of the time so if you just get lots and lots of old carpets or loads and loads of cardboard or whatever it is or just put it on top of the lawn and get rid of the light and suddenly it'll die off and then if you can't handle that and get someone to turn it dig it up or whatever and start again and but you're better off not disturbing the soil if you can that's why i'd say to kill off the lawn with lack of light if you can 
But you can then replant it with native plants. The ideal thing is to work with the seed bank, which is already in the soil, because nature knows how to heal herself quicker than anyone. But unfortunately, I know in the States and in Canada, there's a major problem with non-native invasive plants, which are which have escaped from people's gardens and become probably one of the top few reasons to causing the collapse of habitat. Because these non-native invasive plants have no checks and balances in this in, in the places they're not from. And they go crazy having a party and they take over vast swathes of land, completely removing habitat and food web systems for all the local creatures that we're supposed to be sharing the planet with. And that's our responsibility to fix it. And you'll often hear people, and they're usually very sensitive people who, you know, just they're usually very sensitive people who don't like the idea of us stepping in and controlling again, which I do understand. But the reality is the truth of it is you can't let that continue. We've done the damage and we have to fix it. And that encyclopedia of plants and creatures that have woven themselves into each other's lives, they're incredibly important. And when you break that by putting in a plant that wipes everything else out to the detriment of all other life, it's our job to take them out. So in, in every square foot of soil, there's about 5,000 weed seeds, as we call them. And that's the best way to allow your lawn to come back. So I have a lawn here. I didn't sow anything in it. I, I built a house and after the builders were gone, I just I smoothed out the, lo- the ground around my house and waited to see what came out. And what came out was a lovely mix of all sorts of little creatures like buttercups and things that come out. They're called pioneer plants and their role is to heal the soil. And And I keep that area just around the house mowed because I'm mimicking the actions of some of the missing creatures in my system, which would be the large herbivore mammals, because they'd normally graze that. They'd graze patches of meadows, say, because in an arc, you have to step you have to step in and create as many different layers of ecosystem maturity as possible, depending on how much land you have. Like I was saying, if you had 1500 acres, you'd just make sure you had all the creatures back in it, like the wolves and the deer and all the missing elements of the food of the web of life of the ecosystem, the native ecosystem. But in a small garden, you can't have anything like that. So you have to become them. So you become the wolf, you become the deer, you become whatever it is, like over here, you'd become the wild boar or all the things that are missing. So that means you wouldn't have grazing animals. So you'll have a bit of a lawn or you'll mow a path through a meadow or and then you'd have an arc meadow, which is not what people like to have is the flowery meadows with all the colorful flowers and all that. It's an arc meadow is much more gentle and it depends on the part of the world you're in. But it's not packed full of color. It's much more subtle generally. And then unless you're in California, when those places burst into life, which I have seen incredible to a bit of rain sometimes. And then you'll have into woodland, which is like scrubby, thorny woodland. And then you have woodland. And then in between all that, you would have as many supports as possible, like water. Like water is an amazing support or, or piles of dead wood. And you leave the leaves where they fall because the larvae need those leaves as part of their life cycle to finish off their life cycles. And so many mammals need those leaves for their winter blanket. And we keep 
blowing them away with these awful machines that burn all the larvae up and remove the, the, the safety of that blanket for the winter from the soil and from all the plants around there and returning the nutrients back to the plants and all those things that we're doing on the basis of tidying up and, you know, and um, I'm, I'm after going off on three or four different tangents there now. <laughs> Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. We started that thread, we were talking about lawns and how the United States is covered with so much lawns. lawn and how we're attached to that. And that goes back. It's very deep. And I have an anecdote to tell about about this. You were saying how sometime back lawns were a status symbol. If you had a lawn, it meant that you were doing well, that you didn't have to grow your own food, that it was like a, a symbol of prosperity. So just last week, I was telling a friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, about your book. And I said, okay, she says, let your land go. And, and I was explaining the whole thing. And she said, last year, I didn't mow my lawn. Her lamb was very open and she let her lawn go because she wanted that visual barrier. And she had a terrible time with people commenting. She said people would honk at her as they passed her house and they would yell things. And she would run into people and they would say, what is going on at your house? What are you doing? Solution to that is a big part of arcing, which to make a sign. Yes. And put mm. it up in full view saying this is an ark yeah. and an act of restorative kindness to the earth. And then put the website underneath so that people see it and they realize that, oh, they're doing something intentional. Exactly. And if they look at the website, they will understand it. Because the shame of having a messy garden is very difficult for people to overcome. But the thing about it is it doesn't have to be messy. It can be beautiful. And that's mm -hmm. what Doug Tallamy always talks about. There isn't much life in a tidy garden. It's And people are afraid of wildness. They're afraid of wildness because somehow they feel it'll cause everything to collapse because they've created these 
tight constructs to survive and and they're not good lives that people have created and they can be very disconnected from who they truly are and when they see even a patch of land that's wild it can throw them off because it reminds them of who they're supposed to be themselves they realize how far away from themselves they've moved and they get really angry about it and they take it out on whatever patch of land or person that isn't fitting into the box that keeps them feeling safe and valid Again, that goes back to the old Druidic stuff of how we reflect the land. They probably feel safe in a garden because a garden is, in terms of maturity, a garden is like a cleared piece of land, which is like a child. And it looks to you, its guardian, for the direction in which it's going to grow because it has no control over that itself. And it knows that you're going to control it. So generally what we do is we put the garden into a pink tutu And we give it very strict boundaries and we say things like, stay that age. Stand up straight. (laughs) Stand up straight. Be happy and smile when the the neighbors come by. And don't you dare be in a bad mood or don't you dare be free. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And don't ever change. And the earth is the embodiment of the feminine energy. And gardens are a reflection on how we've treated women for a long time. And we've suppressed Mm. the feminine energy to a point where it's only going to be acceptable if it's pretty or productive. Oh, my God. Mary. (laughs) Fascinating. Keep going. I just think we've had enough of that as women, right? And I think it's time to rebalance the masculine and the feminine. And it's way out of balance. And the way to do that is not easy. But if we can restore as many patches of the planet back to their true nature. It will have an effect on all these really strange levels of energetic levels and esoteric levels. There's there's something very interesting happens. They reckon there's a figure of between 3.14% and I've heard figures as high as 17% of the population of the earth of, that needs to shift before the whole consciousness, the whole consciousness shifts. So we only, I reckon it's closer to the 3%. There's, people often talk about this thing called the 100 monkey syndrome. And I'm not even sure if it's a true scientific study or not, but it's a good it's a good explanation of what I'm talking about. And I think it's the Galapagos Islands, they were doing studies. And again, not I've never actually found the actual study, so I can't back this up, but I think it's a good image. And apparently, from what I've read, there was all these islands with populations of the same species of monkeys living on the islands. And on one particular island, one of the monkeys learned how to turn a stick into a tool to fish. And when enough of the monkeys on that particular island had learned it instantly, every single monkey on all the other islands knew what to do with (gasps) that stick. Even though they were isolated. yeah, Even though they were isolated and not connected. So the idea is and if there is examples of it and you see it if you look back through history like the consciousness changes and shifts when a certain level of the population hits an idea and we really got to shift our consciousness if we want to survive if we want to have a livable planet we have five to ten years to sort this mess out because we've pushed we have pushed all the other creatures we're sharing this planet with to the edge. And they're at the edge of the cliff. 
many of them have already fallen over that cliff never to return. And when they're gone, they're not coming back. And the wonderful thing is they reckon there's about 8.7 million species of creatures, of species of all sorts of creatures on this planet. And we only know and have catalogued 1.2 million of them so far. So there's incredible, just the imagination in, in, if you look at this, these creatures and you see, oh my God, like, how did they imagine themselves up? Or how did anything imagine themselves up? Or how did they evolve into that? Like They're just magical. And I get, I really despair when I look at these crazy men who you're generally white men who want to go and fly off into outer space to explore these dead planets as a solution to what we're doing here. And you've just got to say, please go. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I thought you were going to say, but that's the best. <laughs> yeah. But just don't come back. Don't come back. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be fine without you. In fact, you'd probably be a lot better off. And you've got to wonder, like, why don't you just go outside, take off your shoes, walk around, meet your neighbor. And I mean your green neighbours, wild creatures that are sharing this planet with you. They're all around us. They're just losing. They're just losing the ability to stay here. And all of our food, all of our clean air, all of our clean water, all of it is there because of this web of life, maintaining the whole system, which allows us to stay here. And as soon as that's broken and we're breaking all these threads of that web, Every day we're pulling more and more threads out of that web and we don't know what web will cause or what thread will cause that web to collapse. We don't know which mm. one it is and pretty soon it's going to go. And so we have to step up and do everything we can because most people don't understand climate science and whether they do or not, because I don't, I know yeah. I understand that it needs to be tackled as soon as possible, but this stuff people understand. They can see that we're losing all the magic around us. They can see the destruction of our rivers. This wonderful idea called shifting baseline syndrome, which mm -hmm. is this really simple idea made, made up by a Dr. Pauli in the 70s. And I think that's right. I'm desperate when remembering names. But the idea is very simple. And it's that with every passing generation of people, their idea of what is natural has changed. So my dad used to talk about how the sky would turn black for a moment with the migrating birds blocking out the sun or the migrating butterflies blocking out the sun. If we see one now, we think, oh, it's grand. They're still here, but they're not grand. They're not grand. They're struggling to survive. 75% since 1970, a direct link with chemical industrial farming and fisheries and forestry. It's and you can't tackle that on your own, yeah. but you can tackle your patch of this planet. And if enough of us do that, we can make a patchwork quilt that wraps its way around this globe. We're here to be guardians, not gardeners. We're here to be caretakers of this place and all the other creatures that we're lucky enough to share the planet with. That's our job. That's the most important work that's left for us to do. And we can do it so simply if we look at our own space. And that's really important. Just to repeat back to you what you've said so far, you've said it's not easy. 
It's not going to be easy, but it is simple. It is simple. So I think yeah. we have to remember that. It's not easy work, but it's simple, which I think is really yeah. interesting. The problem with it not being easy is the non-native invasive plants generally mm -hmm. is the main problem. And if you're physically, if you're able to keep on top of them and keep pulling them out and stopping them reseeding or keeping them suppressed, it's not that straightforward. And you have to know which ones are which. So you need a good app on your phone backed up by a decent book or whatever. <laughs> but I suppose it's not as straightforward. Like over here, it's really easy because I'd, we don't have that many in non-native invasives. Mm. They're still in pockets and they can still be handled. It's quite a different thing here. And if you if you let a piece go, it, it is quite a challenge to go in there. And yeah, you need a, a good app, probably a couple of them. <laughs> and then some of them are easier to remove than others. However, it I want to say that we took a... A piece of our front yard, it was a place where a circular driveway went around in the middle of it. We had been mowing and suddenly we just decided, let's stop mowing that and get some natives. So we went out and purposefully shopped for native species and put them in. We even got some consulting on it. And this was just one year ago. And so last summer, this amazing little area just emerged and what you were saying to people about how quickly things heal is so very true suddenly we had all these beautiful things and but the remarkable thing was the life that was there around it all of a sudden the you know, all the birds and the creatures that were suddenly there that of course had not been there on on the grass that was there before and people noticed they would pull up and say what is going on here there's it was even noisy there's sounds and activity and there's a whole little life in this little circle of of what used to be grass and so i want to encourage people that you will see results very quickly. It's yes, it take it might take 10 or 15 years to build a food forest or to completely change your whole land over into natives. But if you start with a small piece of ground and just lovingly and intentionally see to it one little bit at a time, you will see results and be very inspired to go on. And that's is in the case with us, my husband and I were so excited about it because of what we did last year. And then here comes your book and Doug Ptolemy's book and others. and But even old habits die hard and old patterns. And a couple of weeks ago, I said to my husband, who's very much in, in, in favor of all of this and does so much around here to accommodate the environment. And I said, I've read a book that changes everything. <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, it's going to involve less mowing. And he said, <laughs> he's a man. They love their mowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he said, less mowing. But when I explained what was going on, he was very agreeable to it. And we realized that there's so many areas around here that the animals, we don't have that many animals. We have way too much grass. And I've even known this. I've had this knowledge about too many lawns and so forth. And I'm taking away little bits of my lawn at a time. But we're going to be, it's going to be more radical than that. So. <laughs> This coming season, I am yeah. building an arc. I am so building an arc. That's so great. There's a thing that men yeah. find peace in control of 
the feminine. There's a, but there's a huge kind of opportunity there for men to evolve and find peace in supporting the feminine to be her true self. Yes, absolutely. And I wanted to go back a little bit and have you talk about how you evolved and your mission evolved from the time you wrote The Garden Awakening and to We Are the Ark. I I think that personally, I think they're wonderful companion books because The Garden Awakening really sets the stage for the spirituality of all this and how you were talking about how you come from a place of emotion So it really sets the groundwork for that and also gives you very concrete information about how to do this. But you're still talking about gardens and you're still talking about garden design. And then how many years later, five, six years later, and we are the ark, you're saying no more gardens. I would love to hear you expand on that. I suppose when I say no more gardens, gardens and no more gardens in the classic sense because yes. you can still design an ark it's just the intention is different so it's not the same intention as a garden yes. which is how can I make this pretty it's about how can I create a space for me and my family but everything that I do has to have a practical function alongside an ecological function to support life for example I'm developing a massive Ark Park in the northwest of Ireland in a place called Westport in County Mayo. And we're converting a huge old estate, which is one of Ireland's kind of most well-known estates. Um, originally was the seat of Grainne Whale, Grace O'Malley, who was the pirate queen of Ireland. Just a wonderful history there. But we're bringing it back to the wildness that lady carried, the power and the wildness. And I'm developing design based around the tree of life, which I mentioned in the Garden Awakening, the idea of the tree of life. And it's really challenging. So there's about 37 companies involved in (laughs) developing this, (laughs) in developing this idea, because it's never been done before, where everything that I do within these gardens, arcs, is it has to be about creating edges in the ecotone and being able to cope with millions of visitors coming through at the same time. So all the life in, in, in an ecosystem is in the edges between two different layers of ecosystem maturity or two different types of habitat. It's the edge between a pond and a meadow or the edge between a mown area and a meadow or the edge between a woodland and the emergent woodland. And they're called ecotones. And most of the species will hang out in the edges and there'll be some species which will be very unique to that crossover points between those edges. And that's all the life is in those edges. So you can use that information to create more life in a park situation or in a design situation. So everything that we do, we're working with whatever nature herself wants to grow there. So we're working with the seed bank. And then in order to increase the diversity of plants to support more life, we're, we're trying to source plants locally from road widening schemes or working with school kids to collect native seeds from their own gardens or whatever. And and then all the paths have to be of local extraction or from something that will also support life. So the edges to the paths might be little dead hedges 
are which are these wonderful upright double posts of wood, which you then pack with twigs and wood. So it creates these incredible insect habitats. But they can also be quite beautiful in that they hold a shape. And, and it's a kind of a, it's trying to find a balance. If you're going to create work, if you're going to create beautiful arc designs, it's just their intention is different. So yeah. even in your own space, the intention is to create as many layers of habitat as possible. And then like you can work with that. Say you can mow a path. So that's one way of creating different layers and it'll allow you and your family to have access. But just make sure you leave as much of it as possible. If you mm-hmm. don't need it, don't take it. That's the other thing. Don't take it if you don't yeah. need it. What's, you don't need to have 20 acres of lawn. You might only need 10 square meters to lie out naked on a sunny day where nobody can see you You and just get loads of vitamin D and stay healthier. I don't know. Not that I'd be lying naked on the lawn now. <laughs> just, <laughs> Sounds nice. It's a fair, it's a fair point to make. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it just the whole idea just makes you look around your own space, whatever it is, and just look at it differently. And just because maybe, maybe they're like right now I'm looking out on a place beside our driveway that we don't really do anything with. And so we just, it just has grass on it. But now look at that and say, hey, that's a really good place to turn into an arc because we're not using it for anything else. So let's grow an arc and let's do a path in it. And we'll do a path and we'll have a little table in the middle or something. And so it just makes you look at things differently. It makes you reframe yeah, yeah. your space. Mm-hmm. And right now, the entire, at least national consciousness in the U.S. is you have lawn and then maybe you'll have a garden around the edges or whatever. You have a lawn. This is just standard. Now that's changing. But your message and we are the arc, it's really revolutionary. And I'm just wondering. It's, it's really simple. It's yes. really simple. It's, practic- it's practically a child's book. It's such a simple message. And I went out of my way to to make it so. Because I don't know about you guys, but I think a lot of people have lost the ability to read. And they can only manage simple, short messages. And I think they're just overwhelmed. And everyone is just, it's just too much. So yeah. if you're going to offer a solution, it has to be simple. And you can read in a couple of sittings, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. And it was really helpful to your message, to your point. But it is a revolutionary idea that let's stop trying to conquer the land and start working with it. And it's just, it's a very simple idea, but I think it leaves people like, what? And I just wonder what kind of reactions from people are you getting? Are you getting pushback? Do, do people grumble about it? Or what are you hearing in reaction to this? Oh, yeah, I get huge pushback. And the gardening industry itself can find it challenging because I guess it threatens their livelihoods. But what I'm saying to people is, gosh, guys, it's not a matter of losing your livelihood. It's a matter of stepping out in front of the curve, yeah, creating a curve and creating arc-centric industry and industry hate the word industry but just making sure that you only plant native plants and that you support people to create food gardens and that you just carry out the principles you don't use lighting or lighting is causing a collapse of so many insects because it blinds them and it blinds the bats and it blinds the fireflies and it's causing a major collapse it causes hormone disruption it causes flight path problems so the way 
way we're lighting up the planet is a major problem and particularly the white and blue toned lights yeah. that have become so popular in the last 20 years and they're the ones that are causing the most problems and again we're breaking breaking all these threads in the web by causing collapse of nighttime pollinators and the nighttime mammals so you can do simple things like talk to your local government council people and see if they would retrofit the street lights with filters to to cause them to be warm amber light or just turn them off and in your own spaces have motion sensor only lights and then And just to bring back the darkness, bring back the night. I think all of that ties directly to what you were saying much earlier on in this conversation, that we are afraid of wildness. I think most people are afraid of wildness. And I think that's the root of a lot of our disconnection from the earth and our disconnection from our the way that we feel disconnected from a solution, because it all feels so much bigger than us. But I think that might be part of it is how do we reconcile our fear of wildness and how do we soothe that so that we hear these messages? And I think that a lot of the work of building an arc is, would be a sort of, what's the word, like a tonic for that if people are scared of wildness, but also, I don't know, in other ways, what how can we help support each other to not be, to not have that fear so we can step forward and do what we need to do? What we need to tell them is that magic happens. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe they're scared of that, though. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And that's okay. And then don't do anything that's going to frighten yourself. Just take a little patch Mm -hmm. of your garden and turn it into an arc. And what will happen is you'll see all these little creatures in there and you'll get excited about it and you'll start to expand slowly because there's no way there's no way you won't. And it's really important that you make your little signs. I don't sell any signs. And I think maybe on some levels, that's not a great plan because people don't, they don't like to do things themselves. They like to just buy stuff, but I'm not going to be importing stuff from halfway across the world to make a sign to send halfway across the world. If I ever I love that. come across any really, if we, if I ever come across any really lightweight materials, I'll think about it, but I haven't yet recycled stuff. I haven't come across mm-hmm. anything. I was trying to get my kids to do it, but they weren't interested. But no, the idea is we have a Facebook group, which is called We Are The Ark. And there's about, there's, I think there's nearly 20,000 people on that. And they some they make their own signs. And there's wonderful signs that people have made all around the world in different languages or whatever. And they make them out of old pieces of wood or bits of metal or ceramic. And they put them on the wall outside their, on their gate or just sticking up where people can see it. And then they don't get their neighbors giving them a hard time anymore and instead of being ashamed they're Mm -hmm. proud and that's really good and it also spreads the idea really quickly because people see it and they get inspired and they go home and they look at their own place and think I could do this and I don't care what reason you do it for if it's laziness we don't care just go for it whatever you can do as long as you take out the non-native invasive plants that's the baseline just to get them out so that they don't spread. Yeah. And then after you do the work originally, it's actually less work because nature takes care of it. You know, you said earlier that you think we have about five or 10 years to turn this around. I think I would describe going back to the question I asked you about your evolution from the garden awakening to we are the ark is more of a sense of urgency. And the time is now. We really have to do this now. We can't wait for the next president or whatever, or the Congress to turn the wheels. We all have to take this into our own hearts 
and minds and right where we are standing, right where we are living, do what we can. Just to quote your book, you say, we are the last frontier and the last generation with enough time left to save this planet by the skin of our teeth, one person, one patch of land, one decision at a time. Where do you find hope that enough people will get this message and act on it? And have you seen evidence of this in places that are unexpected or inspiring to you? Yeah, we've got arcs. We have this little map and we have 1,500 acre arcs in, in the States. We have window boxes in Norway, Ukraine, Russia, everywhere, Africa. There's little arcs all over the world and, and it's spreading. Now it does need help to spread because there's no money behind this. I made a point of not doing that because I started going down that route and then I realized very quickly that it was going to be all about raising money to pay people to run the organization yeah. rather than the actual movement itself. Mm. So I just, I cut that off at the roots. And sometimes I worry that I cut off my nose to spite my face because this, I'm a single parent and I'm self-employed, so I don't have a huge amount of time to run a global movement. <laughs> <laughs> what? In your spare I don't time. Have, in my spare time, I do need help to get that message out there. And I don't know how to do it other than to do things like this podcast and to post stuff on social media and hope that people share it and mm -hmm. just to get, but yeah, I don't know how to get this movement moving because I think it's vital that it does. I think it's really important that it does. And I think it's like an umbrella movement that could pull so many other things in underneath its shelter, but just, yeah, I'm just, I haven't figured that one out yet. So if you, any of your listeners are brilliant at any kind of, <laughs> PR, please tell us how to make it move. Yeah, I, I was going to say, maybe it. we can help. Who knows? Oh, we have I, several. I, we have many thousands of listeners to this podcast. So yes. And here, here at The Good Dirt, we want to really promote this idea. I certainly have a lot of passion behind it myself. So as we begin to wind up here, we always ask our guess a couple of questions. One is, what does slow living mean to you? Since we're all about slow living here on The Good Dirt. Yeah, that's a lovely question. I guess slow living is authentic, isn't it? It's authentic living. It's about not doing stuff because you're just on a treadmill and you're being pushed from Billy to Jack. Do you know the way? I suppose that I feel that the only solution lies in Pulling the solution to the crisis we're facing on the planet is what I'm referring to. It's the solution lies in slow living. And what I mean by that is by pulling everything back in and slowing down. And all of our, I think we do need to get rid of, it's, a, it's really hard for people to get their heads around this now, but we need a really retracted life. Rolling back our lives to be much slower and simpler will actually really enrich life and enrich the planet beneath our feet and it's very simple stuff really and it's not impossible that's the thing there's this wonderful guy in in england called rob hopkins and he wrote an amazing book called from what is to what if and he's the guy who founded the transition towns movement i don't know if you've ever heard of that yes, but I've it's heard just of wonderful this. okay rob is an amazing guy and he used to live in Ireland and I knew him from when he lived here and he went on to do this incredible work. But the book is what you're what we are talking about. It's a new vision for life. And I talk about this in the ARC book. Like 
we we keep being fed really dystopian visions for our future and the way the world works is energy moves in the direction of our focus and so if we focus on only a dystopian dead planet we're not going to move anywhere else so we need to imagine and create a beautiful world and the only way to do that really is to focus on your own part of it and see how quickly it can recover and create communities around food growing and just get excited about life again that's the only way forward really we need new vision and we're not going to get it if we look at television <laughs> and, and, or Fair. the way things are Fair. or keep looking at the way things are to your point exactly point. Yeah. yeah i also i just want to put a plug out there for anyone listening i really love so i'm i do acting and i mm-hmm. a part of my dream is to be able to participate in storytelling in that way. And so I watch a lot of things that are being made because that's the market that I need to be aware of. And there's so much to your point, there's so much dystopian and post-apocalyptic stuff that is very interesting. But yeah, just my call to the universe to say, let's make, (laughs) what if we make stuff that isn't disturbing? So disturbing. <laughs> and I think we're all addicted to it in a way. And we so yeah. much. I hard, I have a really hard time watching it, but I feel like I have to because I got to know what's going on. But I don't know. That's a tangent. Sorry. Oh, no, I agree. <laughs> I agree. And actually, that's the most powerful method of, of feeding people the dystopian view. It yeah. is that stuff. And I think you're right. And it's very unfashionable to say so, but mm-hmm. it's just all awful. It's so awfully dark. And yeah. And I can't look at it. I think once you're in any way sensitive, you're gonna not be able for that stuff mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. I think Agreed. most people who realize that that oh God, we're, we're, people are so disconnected from themselves that they watch things because they're told that it's good Mm -hmm. as opposed to what feels right or feels good. Mary, your words in in The Garden Awakening, the magic ingredient to, to this, to restoring the earth, the magic ingredient that made all of this take on life or enliven this whole process was love. And it's about literally falling in love with the life around us. And I just think that's so key because we have been out of love with it because we have not known it. Yeah. And that's a problem, Mary, because kids, because of shifting baseline syndrome, are so far away from nature. How in God's name are they ever going to want to protect that which they do not know, let alone love? And so a big part of arcing is to try and get the concept into schools and into universities and into, into people's lives so that, you know, that they put like bird boxes with cameras in them and they screen them into the foyers of these places so they watch these lives develop and they form relationships with them, even if they are in that little bit disconnected way. But just the, they don't even know where milk comes from or they don't know about the cruelty in 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 the farming system that produces their food and cruelty to all creatures, and including mm-hmm. the people who end up mm-hmm. eating the food. And even the people the who have to farm the food, who have to, yes, yeah. it's all cruel. So... What did you say? Shifting baseline syndrome? Oh, I'm, I have a story about that. 
she was talking about how people in past generations saw things that we can't see now. So we have nothing to compare it to. And I have a great one from my dad, your grandfather, Emma. He grew up in Florida and he describes going out fishing with his dad when he was a little boy. And at night there was a fish and I wish I could remember the name of it. There was a fish that ran at night and it was silver. And when it was in the water, it appeared silver in the moonlight. And he describes what that looked like when you were in the middle of a run, like the whole, the water around you was alight with silver fish. And it was just like this magical thing. And he says, nobody ever sees that anymore because so many of those fish are gone. So that's what shifting baselines is. Other generations have seen and experienced things that we haven't. Yeah. Yeah. So the waves in the sea and the rivers literally Emma, they used to be hopping with life. Wow. The waves were hopping with life. It's nothing like what we have now. The seas used to be kept crystal clear by beds of oysters. Crystal clear. It's all gone. Like literally, it's all gone. It's quiet out there now. And it's like what Rachel Carson warned us of. Mm-hmm. The silent spring. Like we are in the silent spring. And we are literally at the edge of that cliff. And are we going to jump over it? Are we going to turn back against the tide of sheep that are all running towards the edge? And are we going to stand our ground and try and push back and create a new path that brings us back into the heart of this planet, into the center of this web? We have to. Yeah. We don't have a choice. What does the good dirt mean to you? That's the title of this podcast. And we like to ask everyone right at the end of their interview what the good dirt means to you. Okay, well, I think Mm -hmm. we have only, again, catalogued or got to know 2% of the life beneath the soil and are in the soil beneath the ground as such. All of that microbiome, (laughs) which is within the soil, that's within a healthy soil, it's also in our guts when we're healthy. But like most of the land, it doesn't have that anymore. That's been killed off from overexposure to oxygen and all that stuff. So now most of the soil and most of our guts are pretty much devoid of of all life, other than the few monocultures of things that we seed into it when we take probiotics to restore it after antibiotics. And really, we need to breathe it back in. And that's how, like Zach Bush talks about, and you breathe it back into your your biome. And that's what I do when I go to the woods and I find that good dirt. I, I, I breathe it back in and I make compost teas from it and I bring it back to my own land and I put it back into the soil and make good dirt here too. In closing... Is there anything else you want to talk about or leave the audience with? Just the not to lose hope that there's still hope because the earth recovers very quickly. So it's just we do have to move very quickly and the feminine will rise again. So thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in, calling in and spreading the good dirt. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in the link in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer with original music composed and performed by John Kingsley. Our technical partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Alex Brower and Jose Miguel Baez. Coordinated by Gabriela Montequim. For more from Lady Farmer, 
Follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt.